Hey, this is Maureen, and um, I just have a little pre-episode update here. We recorded this episode right before one of the officers who shot Brianna Taylor was fired, Brett Hankinson. You'll hear in this episode that he's a accused sexual predator, and he's also, we didn't know when we recorded, the guy who fired blindly into Brianna's apartment from the patio through curtained windows into the apartment without knowing what he was shooting at. And that's why he was fired. (laughs) Not because she died, apparently, or anything like that, but because of that. I guess it violated policy. (laughs) So anyway... I don't want to give too much away, but just to update you when you listen that that has happened, obviously it's questionable whether he will be charged with anything. He hasn't at this point, and as we know and we make clear in this episode, it's very difficult to find places where a white police officer who has shot a black woman is charged and convicted So this story obviously is going to keep on going and will keep you updated, but I just wanted to give that little update. And also something I forgot to mention in the episode when we were recording is that the heavily redacted report that they finally released three months after Brianna was shot, one of the few things in it is that she had no injuries or appeared to have no injuries, even though she'd been shot eight times. Hmm. Hope you enjoy this episode, and we'll talk to you soon. Hi, this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. Yeah, <laughs> you would you would do if you had nothing better to do. That's right. Or even if you did have something better to do, right? What, well, and yeah. and today I feel like today's episode is the one where our sound is finally going to be okay. Uh, I or don't. Tonight. I wouldn't Unless jinx I... it by saying that. Okay, I, think I, you, I won't. You should, you... Well, I well, think I got the late. problem. You already did. Right, I did. So there, you can't take back a jinx. But I think I got the problem from last time fixed we're kind of up after our bedtimes <laughs> at least mine yes so we should probably well, just yeah, la- launch right in right okay do yeah i don't have any updates okay I, yeah if i do i don't have them now and i want to say before i start i used a crap load of sources for this Ooh. and when i'm quoting directly from one um i'll cite it and i'm going to put all the links on our website and i really mean it I save mm-hmm. them all in a doc, and I'm going to throw them on the website, and they'll nice. be there. Yeah, because um, there's a lot of them, and you'll see why. So here we go. Maybe it shouldn't be, but it's really startling when you look into it. The number of black women killed by police in their own home for no good reason. I bet you're stunned, right? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. The deaths of most of these women weren't caught on cell phone videos since they happened in their own homes. Some may have been caught on police body cams since they were all killed by police. And unlike the recent deaths of many black men, who are the focus of the very justified rage of people, both black and white, many of these deaths didn't get a lot of notice at the time they happened. Or if they did, it quickly faded. Some of them are in the news for a while. Some of them have been brought up now because of the George Floyd thing. I thought it was 
probably a good idea that we looked at some of these in the bigger picture of what's going on in the country and um, racism and policing and stuff. What do you think? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I knew you'd agree. And some of the deaths that did get noticed were followed by the same type of narrative that follows almost all police killings, the spin that makes it somehow the victim's fault, except in some rare instances, no accountability or little from the cops, no surprises there, and forget it if the victim has physical or mental health issues. This obviously could be very, very long, so I'm just going to focus on two very recent cases that you've heard of, and then there's a few others I'll talk about in less detail. But first, a little history lesson for some context. You've probably heard about no-knock warrants. Maybe in you couldn't no, see it, but I was no. making quote marks with my finger. Have you? Are you saying no? You oh. haven't. <laughs> You're making air quotes. Yes, <laughs> I've probably heard of them, but just oh, good. I okay, well, maybe you've never heard of them. You can explain was my next them. Line. I will. Maybe you've never heard of them, like Becky, and maybe you have heard of them. <laughs> but they've been around for fifty years. Introduced by President Nixon in 1971 as part of the War on mm. Drugs. Did you hear my quotes uh, there? That he created. Yes. Yeah, he created it and later presidents ran with it. His belief was that escalating crime was tied to drugs in the United States and if penalties for drug crimes were really high, people would stop using the drugs. That's an oversimplification of his views on it, but you get what I mean. The no-knock warrant means that cops can burst into a person's house without announcing who they are to raid for drugs or to arrest somebody. This is, of course, you may rightly think, a violation of the Fourth Amendment, which holds that people have the right to be safe in their own homes and are protected against illegal search and seizure. But, as with so many other laws that target minorities and the poor, who cares about a little obstacle like the U.S. Constitution, right? In the 1980s... Yeah! Yeah, yeah. In the 1980s, President Reagan took the ball and ran with it with the Federal Anti-Drug Abuse Act, which ratcheted up penalties as well as enforcement and added to the further militarization of police forces, which were already being militarized. And um, there was a nice little mix of racism involved in there with crimes for certain drugs, more popular with minorities, penalties higher than um, for others. A story on the PBS NewsHour by Candace Norwood cites a study by Peter Kraska, a professor at Eastern Kentucky University, that shows that municipal police and sheriff's departments use no-knock or quick-knock warrants. And a quick-knock is like where you knock and then burst in as you announce yourself a knock. So it's, yeah, not really. Um, They used them about 1,500 times in the early 1980s, but by 2000 they were using them about 40,000 times a year. In 2010, Mm. Kraska estimated 60,000 to 70,000 no-knock or quick-knock raids were conducted by local police annually, and that was 10 years ago. The idea of the no-knock raids is not to give the bad guys in the apartment time to react and flush the drugs down the toilet or grab their gun. The right to do it stems back to a 1963 Supreme Court ruling that agrees police have the right to do it, despite that pesky constitution, so they can have access Mm. to the evidence. There are also, as I said, quick-knock raids um, where they just knock and then burst in as they knock. Rulings in the (laughs) 90s, yeah, I know, tweaked them a little, saying police could only use them if they had reasonable suspicion that knocking would be dangerous, futile, or inhibit the, quote, effective investigation of a crime. Of course, if somebody were to contest 
the warrant. Uh, it would be up to a judge to decide if they had done those things. And this may stun you, but judges tend to side with the police on these. Oh, wow. I know. The story by PBS says a 2014 ACLU report analyzing more than 800 SWAT deployments involving no-knock and quick-knock entries, 62% of those were drug searches, and it determined that law enforcement found drugs 35% of the time, they found nothing 36% of the time, and 29% they um, didn't say whether they found anything or not in their incident report, which would lead me to believe they found nothing because if they found something, mm. they would have put it in the report. And if you've never seen one yes. in action, watch Peace Officer, which is available on Amazon Prime, and which I'm reviewing later, which shows just how brutal these are. I defy anyone being woken up from a sound sleep by one of these to have any fucking idea what's going on or what the people are saying. They're not knocking and saying, hey, it's the police, let us in. They're screaming at the top mm-hmm. of their lungs over and over, police, let us in, police, let us in, police, let us in. And you can't even understand what they're saying. It really, it's disgusting, actually. Yeah. The PBS story says the very nature of surprise entering someone's home, often late at night or early in the morning, heightens the risk of violence. They added that the prevalence of gun ownership in U.S. homes can further raise the risk. And that's not Mm, just violence like the police can be shot. That's violence like the police perceive the violence and Mm -hmm. then react. And that's exactly what happened in the case of Breonna Taylor, which you may have heard a little bit about recently. Taylor, 26, an emergency room technician and former EMT, lived in an apartment she shared with her boyfriend, Kenneth Walker, 27, in Louisville, Kentucky. Taylor had plans for a lifelong career in healthcare, according to her mother. And I want to make one thing clear right now, because most articles don't. Brianna Taylor was not involved with drugs. She was a hardworking young woman who wanted to become a nurse, and she had no kind of criminal record whatsoever. Even if she had been involved in drugs... This shouldn't have happened, but I feel I just need to make that clear because there's this implication, you know. Mm-hmm. The night of March 12th, she'd worked all day and had dinner with her boyfriend. She'd called a cousin to discuss what swimsuits they'd wear on a vacation they planned on taking in a few weeks. And she and Walker went to bed. They were in bed when, at 12.40 a.m., police burst into her apartment. Minutes later, she was dead from eight gunshot wounds. The police last week, and today is June... 14th. Thank you. The police last week released a lengthy but almost completely redacted report of the shooting. Like, with totally blank pages. Um, But shortly after the shooting, here's what they said happened the early morning of March 13th. They'd gotten two warrants earlier that day. No-knock warrants for both Brianna's apartment and another house about 10 miles away. They were looking to nail Jamarcus Glover, a man Brianna had dated a few years before and with whom she'd maintained an amicable relationship. To get the warrant, police said their surveillance had uncovered that Glover was getting, quote, suspicious packages mailed to Taylor's apartment. Their undercover guys had seen Glover leaving Brianna's building with a suspicious package. Now, they don't elaborate on what's suspicious about the packages. I can only imagine... And they said the fact that suspicious packages were being mailed to her apartment was confirmed by the local poster inspector, though the postal inspector um, afterwards told a TV station in the only interview I could find with him that he hadn't 
confirmed there were suspicious packages being mailed there, and there was no record with the Postal Service of suspicious packages being mailed to her house. By the way, her current boyfriend, Kenny Walker, who she lived with, was not named at all on the warrant and had no serious criminal record. The cops, members of the criminal interdiction squad, weren't wearing body... Yeah, I know. What is that? It sounds very serious, but they weren't wearing body cameras because their squad doesn't wear them. Um, Of course not, because they only are bursting into people's homes. Bingo. I was just going to say, very convenient when they're doing the type of thing where there could be constitutional issues and people could get shot. At 12.40 a.m., police said they knocked on the door multiple times and identified themselves as police. Mm -hmm. Despite the fact that they had a no-knock warrant, but whatever. My feeling is if they have a no-knock warrant, they're not going to knock. Yeah, why would they? Why would they? Because the whole thing is one big fun thing for them. They just love... Yeah, and I'll get into that later. They like being loud and bursting in. uh, Right, and scaring the shit out of people. When no one opened the door, they used a battering ram to let themselves in. As they burst, yes, as they burst in, one shot from inside the apartment hit Sergeant John Jonathan Mattingly in the thigh, and everybody, he's okay, all right? Walker, the <laughs> boyfriend, either before he fired the shot or after, but I think it was before when they were still banging on the door, called 911 and said someone was trying to break into his apartment. He had no idea who it was, and if you listen to the call, which is very easy to find online, it's obvious he doesn't know it's the police. The cops opened fire after Mattingly was shot, And they fired two dozen rounds, at least. Bullets hit the kitchen, the living room ceiling, the living Mm. room window, the curtains, the wall across from the window, two apartments that were adjoining that one, one above and one next to, one which had a five-year-old and a pregnant Mm. woman in it, a clock on the wall, a cooking pot, a chair, a full-length mirror. Walker was arrested for shooting the cop by 1 a.m., 20 minutes after the cops had arrived. Walker said he didn't hear the police identify themselves, didn't know they were cops. All he knew was that someone was loudly invading his apartment and he wanted to protect it and his girlfriend. He's a licensed gun owner and Kentucky has a stand your ground law, but I don't Hmm. think anyone told him that those are only for white people. So he grabbed his gun when he heard the banging. And as they crashed the door, he fired a shot because somebody was breaking his door down and coming into his apartment. Neighbors, by the way, said they also didn't hear police identify themselves. (laughs) Taylor's sister, Janiah Palmer, usually stays over in the second bedroom but wasn't there that night. Lucky for her. Quote, It was incredible that Ms. Taylor was the only one killed, Rob Egger, Walker's attorney, wrote in a lawsuit against the police department. The shots were fired inside the apartment, as well as from at least one officer who was outside and firing blindly into the home, according to the lawsuit. Jesus. The person shooting from outside, quote, could not see anything inside, unquote, because the living room window was obscured by curtains and the second bedroom window was obscured by a screen and blinds, the lawsuit says. Quote, there was no way that the officers could have had a reasonable line of sight when firing into the home from outside the window. Benjamin Crump, representing Taylor's family, he said, police, said, he said police rounds came from everywhere, from the front door, from the window, from patio doors. I mean, it was a volley of bullets from every direction. I didn't have as much time as I wanted to to research this, but nothing I saw in my the stuff I read for this indicated if the police, and I assume it's in that redacted report, 
said where she was, I think she was in a hallway or something, but where the shots came from that hit her. Mm-hmm. Hours after the shooting, police identified Kenny Walker as a suspect in the shooting of the cop, Manning Lee. They also referred to Taylor as a suspect, even though she'd been unarmed and was now dead. They didn't say who shot her, just that it was under investigation, but the implication was heavy that Walker might have shot her, at least at Mm, first. I'm sure. Right, and that's one of the things I initially remember when this first happened, was there was an implication that she had been shot by her boyfriend. Police got a second search warrant for her apartment hours after the shooting, And in it, they told the judge that the cops returned gunfire, quote, in the course of protecting themselves and other civilians. The Louisville Courier-Journal writes, and I'm quoting from their story, the wording is an apparent reference to Louisville Metro Police Policy, which states that the use of deadly force is authorized in defense of oneself or another when the officer reasonably believes that the person against whom the force is used poses an immediate threat of death or serious injury to the officer or to another person. The policy adds that deadly force, like all uses of force, should not be used unless all other reasonable alternatives have been exhausted, and a feasible verbal warning should be given before it's used. Hmm. It also states that officers firing their weapon should remain cognizant of the direction in which it's being discharged, and the danger of discharging a firearm while moving. The statement in the second search warrant after Taylor was killed names her as the subject armed with a gun, who fired a shot that hit Manningly. The detectives returned fire, it says, and struck the subject unknown number of times. Mm. The subject collapsed inside the listed residence and subsequently was pronounced dead on the scene. Good for them. They later, I think it was a day or two before they finally changed it to the fact that Walker is the one who shot the cop, not Brianna. Brianna was not armed. I think she was in her Mm -hmm. underwear. At the exact time Taylor was being shot, Jamarcus Glover, the guy they were after, was arrested across town and was in custody when she was killed. I know that the family and others have made a big point of this, and it seems reasonable that it means the cops shouldn't have been raiding her house since they had him. But the way I look at it, first of all, they considered her involved somehow because she's a black woman and it's a drug thing and he's a former boyfriend and and they looked at her as a suspect. So they wouldn't have cared that they had Glover and I'm not defending them by any means. I'm just Mm -hmm. saying it doesn't make a difference because it would have messed up their chance to crash into yet another house and scare the living shit out of people Mm -hmm. that they don't give a shit about. A lot of interesting things have happened in the months since Brianna was killed regarding the case. The charges against Walker were dropped pretty fast. That's the charges against him for shooting the cop. The FBI became involved. Police Chief Steve Conrad was fired um, a week or two ago after restaurant owner Dave McAtee, who owned Yaya's Barbecue, was shot in the doorway of his Mm. restaurant, either by the Louisville PD or the National Guard. Since they fired a volley of bullets, it takes some time to sort out who fired the shots that actually killed the person, and sometimes that info never gets out. Conrad, the chief who was fired, was going to retire anyway at the end of June after Taylor was killed. McAtee's death came at the height of the George Floyd protests and the city had a curfew. McAtee was serving food at an outdoor stand after the curfew in a black neighborhood miles away from where the protests were. Police said he fired a weapon, though they're not sure at who or why. The only criminal activity going on was that people were out enjoying a warm June night when there was a curfew, and the cops and National Guard were there to enforce the curfew. The cops released a video saying it shows he fired at them, but an analysis by the New York Times and other experts shows he fired 
after a volley of pepper balls was fired at him and his family, and his niece came close to getting hit. It's unclear if he fired at the police, knew it was pepper balls being fired, or even knew it was police and who was firing them. It's thought now that he was out there cooking barbecue miles away from the protest. I won't get into a big thing about curfews, but in a lot of instances, there's just this false construct designed to let cops be bigger assholes to people. And have people break, break a law that was just manufactured on the spot for no good reason. McAtee was a neighborhood fixture who gave away free meals to people in need and was actually considered a bridge between the community and police who he got along with. But I digress. Another development in the Taylor killings is that two women, both white it looks like, have some interesting things to say about Brett Hankison, one of the cops who shot Taylor. And this is from the Louisville Courier-Journal. Margot Borders posted on Facebook on June 4th that she went to a bar with friends in April 2018 and, drunk, she was going to call an Uber when Hankison, who she'd interacted with before and was acquainted with, offered her a ride home. Quote, He drove me home in uniform in his marked car, invited himself into my apartment, and sexually assaulted me while I was unconscious, Borders said. I never reported him out of fear of retaliation. I know. Ugh. I never reported him out of fear of retaliation. I had no proof of what happened, and he had the upper hand because he was a police officer. Who do you call when the person who assaulted you is a police officer? Who are they going to believe? I knew it wouldn't be me. And I just want to say a little tiny bit of a tangent. Twice the other day, in totally different venues, I heard a male cop remarking that a woman didn't report a sexual assault or a group of women assaulted by the same guy didn't because they were, quote, ashamed and embarrassed. And I want to say that for police to think that is really disappointing because I think most women who don't report sexual assaults, whether it's by a cop or someone else, don't do it because they know how they're going to re- be treated yeah. and how hard it's going to be. It's to- easier just to get a, go, you know. And by the way, particularly in Louisville. Oh yeah, I was going to ask you, isn't that where that the- podcast? Yes. There's a podcast dig that came out last year. Yes about what happens to women in Louisville who report rapes. They're treated pretty shabbily. Um, After the Facebook post, she told the Courier-Journal that Hankison was a predator of the worst kind. Quote, He used his uniform to stalk women at local bars and sexually assault them, Borders said. I was one of these women. This man knew his badge would keep us quiet and that his LMPD brotherhood would protect him. After several years and several victims, it was clear he was right. When I found out that Brett Hankinson, whose face and presence in Louisville had haunted me for the last two years, was one of Brianna's killers, I knew my time of being silenced by this man was over. A second woman, and it's not clear if this was before or after Borders post, Emily Terry wrote on Instagram that she was walking home from a bar in early fall while intoxicated when a police officer pulled up next to her and offered her a ride home. Quote, I thought to myself, wow, this is so nice of him, (laughs) Terry wrote. And willingly got in. He began making sexual advances towards me, rubbing my thigh, kissing my forehead, and calling me baby. Mortified, I did not move. I continued to talk about my grad school experiences and ignored him. As soon as he pulled up to my apartment building, I got out of the car and ran to the back. Terry wrote that her friend reported the incident the next day, and of course, nothing came from it, she said. When Terry saw Hankison in the news related to the Taylor shooting, she recognized him. It's not the first time Hankison has been accused of being a sexual predator. 
He's been investigated at least twice by LMPD's Public Integrity Unit for accusations involving sexual misconduct. Both uh, ca- uh, uh. I know. Uh. Both cases found no wrongdoing, the Courier-Journal writes. In 2015, a probation and parole officer told investigators that a parolee told her that Hankinson told the parolee he wanted to, quote, date her, unquote, and I think we know what that means. The parolee said he had come in, uh, he had come on to her and said a ticket could be taken care of if she had sex with him. Gross. I know. She later retracted the statements. Gee, I wonder why, since she was on parole. An investigator, in recommending the case be closed, said no evidence was found and it was clear she was being deceptive. Mm. In 2008, he was accused of receiving oral sex... And, and, and that's getting a blowjob for those of you. Oh, thank you for uh, explaining in, it. In exchange for not arresting a woman with an outstanding warrant. It's not clear who the accusation came from, and the woman denied it occurred. The incident occurred. And boy, mm. he's just an unlucky guy being the subject of all these accusations oh, by no. women. Oh, poor guy. And he's also the subject of a federal lawsuit filed last October by a man named Kendrick Wilson. The suit says that Hankison occasionally works off-duty at bars in the St. Matthews area of Louisville. Wilson accuses Hankison of being a dirty cop with a vendetta against him. The suit alleges that Hankinson planted drugs on Wilson at least twice while working at bars and harassed him with unnecessary arrests. Two of the cases stemming from Hankison's arrest of Wilson have been dismissed, and the third is pending in circuit court. The suit also says that Wilson and Hankison have, have had interactions outside of the arrest, including over a relationship with the same woman. Mm. Hankison, yeah, Hankison denied all the allegations in a response filed a month later, and the suit is pending, according to the Courier-Journal. The Louisville Courier-Journal, by the way, has filed a Freedom of Information suit for the, a non-redacted version of the incident report from the Taylor killing. So, what happened to Brianna Taylor is horrific, but just as horrific is the story of a Tatiana Jefferson. Tatiana, 28, had recently moved into her mother's little bungalow in Fort Worth, Texas to help care for her last fall. Her mother, Yolanda Carr, who'd been a nurse for 50 years, had congestive heart failure, and Tatiana had graduated with a Bachelor of Science in Biology from Xavier University of Louisiana in 2014. She worked from home selling pharmaceutical supplies, and she was studying to take exams to enter med school. The night of Friday, October 11th last year, her eight-year-old nephew was spending the night, and the two stayed up late playing video games. At 2.23 a.m. on Saturday, October 12th, a neighbor, James Smith, sitting out on his porch across the street, noticed that her front door was open. While news reports don't specify, it looks from photos and body cam that the main door was open and the screen door was shut, which is something I think a lot of people do on a warm night. I know I do, you know, and then shut it when you go to bed. Smith crossed the street and went to the driveway to take a closer look. All the lights in the house were on, but he didn't see anything and hadn't seen anyone for a while. He said he didn't know who was in there or if anyone was in there. He called a non-emergency police number because he was concerned about the door being open that late since that wasn't normal for them. He was calm and never said anything about a burglary, and it was the non-emergency number, not 911, that he called. He just wanted someone to come check. Then he went home. He figured a squad car would arrive. He'd um, see it, you know, out his window or something, and he'd go over and talk to the cops when they got there. 
The two officers who responded were responding to an open structure call, which the New York Times describes as a vague classification that could mean anything from an abandoned house to a burglary in process. It was not a welfare check, as it's frequently referred to, um, where the police are asked to check on the welfare of a person and make sure they're okay. In a welfare check, police knock on the door or call the person. Apparently, open structure calls are more serious, and they approach the house in a sneakier way, according to Interim Fort Worth Chief Ed Krause. And sneaky is my word, not his. They don't ring the doorbell, and they don't call the house. In this instance, the cops park their car I guess that makes sense if they think it's like a burglary or something, you know. Right. But Um, still. But you would think that... eh, yeah, we could be here all night if we start. Yeah, but anyway, the cops parked their car a block away, not in front of the house, a tactic that doesn't help the homeowner out at all when they're trying to figure out who is at their door. And by the way, the SWAT teams and stuff frequently do this too. They don't park in front of the house, and so people don't know who it is coming to their door. Then that's also why James Smith, the neighbor, never saw the police arrive so he could talk to them. The body cam of one of the officers, Aaron Dean, shows him briefly going onto the front porch, shows the open door but the closed screen, and then without knocking or saying anything, you know, without calling out, hey, is anyone home or whatever, he and the other police officer go to the side of the house, they unlatch a fence door, and they go into the fenced backyard. Dean, 35, who is white, as are all the police in this story today, had his gun out, and ready, and was holding a flashlight. He saw a figure inside a window. Put your hands up! Show me your hands! He yelled. Kind of like that, only harder to understand. Ooh, you're such a good actor. Yeah, aren't I? Great (laughs) reenactment. Yeah. Ah, Okay. um, Yeah. The officers did not identify themselves as police. It's clear on the body cam. Dean immediately, after yelling that, fired one shot through the glass of the window. According to Atatiana's eight-year-old nephew, Atatiana had heard noise outside in the backyard, in the fenced backyard, and she got a handgun from her purse and pointed it toward the window of the bedroom they were in where they were playing video games. Since the cop had a flashlight, she probably saw light and people lurking in her fenced backyard. The other officer on the scene said in a warrant for Dean's arrest that she could only see Atatiana's face through the window when Dean fired. She didn't see a gun. In any case, my guess is that Tatiana, being in a lit room and it being dark outside, couldn't see much of anything except the flashlight that was blinding her before she was shot. And if you haven't seen the body cam footage, you don't really see her get shot, but you see, like, what the cop sees, and you see he's right up against the window shining a flashlight in it. Imagine if you're in a house and it's dark out, and that comes up to your window. You know, like what would you think? Would, would you think it was a cop outside? No. no. The, the warrant for Dean's arrest came two days after a Tatiana was shot. The day after, so this was before Dean was arrested, police released what Time magazine called heavily redacted still images from the scene showing what was possibly a gun in the window. The one I saw in the Time magazine story was a very blurry, abstract looking photo where you couldn't really tell what it was except for a pretty clear handgun sticking out of the middle of this blur. So I wonder if instead of redacted, uh, what time meant was doctored. In a news release on the day Dean shot Jefferson, police said he shot her after perceiving a threat. But after the body cam video was released, he was charged with murder. That was two days after the shooting, a few hours after he'd resigned from the force. 
The neighbor, Jim Smith, is obviously devastated. This is the most tragic thing in my life, he told the TV station. He's lived there for 50 years and has always looked out for his neighbors. While some criticized him for calling police, he said he thought he was doing the right thing. Quote, I made the call because I thought they were going to do what I called them to do, check on my neighbor, he said in a TV interview a few days after Tatiana was killed. But they didn't, he added. They shot her. I guess not. Nope. Dean had been a cop for about two years. He joined the Fort Worth Department in August 2017, a few months after he graduated from the police academy, and he became a commissioned peace officer in 2018. He was criticized in a performance review the previous year for missing calls for help over the radio and sometimes having tunnel vision. In the review in 2018, his supervisor wrote that he had poor communication skills and that when he forgot to do something, rather than owning up to it, his responses are evasive and deflecting, according to the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, which obtained his personnel records. In a video of part of his job interview that the Star-Telegram posted with their story about this, he said he wanted to be a cop to help people. But he also said, When I was a kid, I wanted to go into the military. Thought about it, but I just never did it. This is a way to do some of those same things without having to deploy overseas. When an officer in the interview asked Dean if there was... Hmm. I know. That should have been a kind of a red well, flag. Of course, they like him that they, way now. Right, right. When an officer in the interview asked Dean if there was, quote, a time to fight, Dean said he would use force in self-defense or if there was an imminent threat. Quote, The time to fight is certainly if I'm under or someone I care about or I'm responsible for is under imminent threat. Absolutely, if there's an imminent threat that I think is necessary to defend myself, then that is absolutely the time to do it. He was asked, will you be able to kill somebody if you have to? No problem, Dean answers, nodding his head, very eager. I'm your guy. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much, if you watch the video. He's very eager, and he he says it before the guy even has the sentence... Uh, has the question finished. He also says he has a concealed carry license and carries a gun with him all the time and says it's always on his mind that he has his gun with him. Nice. At least I take it, take that as his meaning. Besides helping people, he said he wanted to be a cop because he liked, quote, the action and adventure that I hear the stories about that the job seems to promise. Dean, 35, was homeschooled throughout high school and attended the University of Texas at Arlington, graduating in 2011 with a bachelor's degree in physics, according to his police job application. He worked as a design test engineer for commercial refrigeration systems before becoming a police officer, according to his resume. While in college in 2004, he was charged with simple assault. In his police application, Dean said he was in the college library, quote, flirting with a girl I was friends with who had flirted with me on previous occasions. During the course of the exchange, I put my arms around her and at one point stroked her breast. She told me this made her uncomfortable and asked yeah. I, I know. She told me this made her uncomfortable and asked me to stop, which I immediately did, quite embarrassed and apologetic. She later reported the, incidents to po- the incident to police. Hmm. <coughs> I'd like to hear her version of that. Yeah, no shit. In his interview, one of the officers asked him about the charge and what changes he had made since. And this is on the snippet of the interview that the um, Star-Telegram has online. This is in their article. And he says, quote, It was a young lady at the school flirting with me. So her fault... 
I just wanted to respond, see how it would go. It escalated Ugh. a bit. I touched her inappropriately, he said. He said he asked the woman not to report the assault because he attended a conservative church and was, quote, worried about tarring and feathering and all that. But she contacted the Arlington police anyway. He pleaded no contest to the charge and misdemeanor and paid a fine. He told officers that after the charge, he became more careful about his actions and how they are perceived. The Mm -hmm. Star Telegram says, according to Fort Worth civil service rules and regulations, the misdemeanor charge would not prevent him from being hired as an officer. Sergeant Chris Daniels told the Star Telegram that the charge was, quote, given considerable scrutiny before the hire- during the hiring process. You know, and I feel like there's a lot of misogyny involved in these. There is. Shootings. You wonder if, if he had assaulted a man. What, well, there's a school of thought out there the that job? doesn't think grabbing a woman's boob I is know. anything a woman should get that upset about, too. You know, Especially because she was flirting with I him. I know. God, what did she expect? And remember how I said Krauss was an interim chief? That's because the previous one was fired in May, five months before Atatiana was killed after he allegedly gotten into an argument with the head of the state police union in public. That chief, mm-hmm. Joel Fitzgerald, is black, and he sued to get his job back after Atatiana was killed, but that went nowhere. Krauss said God wanted him in the job. Oh, um, God. Well, even, can't argue with that. No, can't argue with that. Even though Fitzgerald pointed out there have been 10 police shootings, six of them fatal, between June and Tatiana's killing. That's police shooting people, so. by the way, not people shooting police. Mm. One man who was shot was pointing a flashlight at officers after barricading himself inside a house, and they thought it was a rifle. Whoops. A month before Tatiana was killed, the city council created a police monitor position, set up a police cadet program, and began a, a diversity and inclusion program. Not soon enough, I guess. After she was killed, Mayor Betsy Price said the city was planning to have national experts review the department and its policies. And I couldn't find anything that said that that had been completed or there was any kind of report on that. Krauss said officers in the Department of 1700 supported the decision to charge Dean. I cannot make sense of why she had to lose her life, Krauss said at the news conference a few days after she was killed. Nobody looked at this video and said there's any doubt that this officer acted inappropriately. Nobody looked at this video and said there's any doubt that this... I I hate it when people speak in double negatives, but he's saying it was inappropriate. I was going to fire him even before he quit. We had already (laughs) taken his badge and weapon. There were violations in his use of force, and he didn't follow de-escalation protocols. He didn't follow de-escalation. Nothing had escalated to de-escalate. I know. know? His conduct was unprofessional. There are times for officers to act as warriors and defenders, and there are times for them to act as public servants and humble servants. Police officials were criticized for releasing the blurry gun image, and Lee Merritt, the family lawyer, called the department's decision to release that image obscene. Krauss said he understood the reaction to the release of the image and said that decision would also be reviewed. In hindsight, it was a bad thing to do, Krauss said. I think it was to show there was a weapon involved. However, we're homeowners in the state of Texas. I can't imagine most of us, if we had somebody outside our house that shouldn't be and we had access to a a firearm, that we wouldn't act very similarly to how she acted. Duh. Yeah, aren't they all about their Second Amendment rights? Yeah, that's Texas's motto. Yeah, only white people. I couldn't tell if he seemed sad about a Tatiana dying, but the newspaper said he fought back tears as he said the shooting would undoubtedly hurt the relationship between officers and citizens. 
Uh-huh. He also said he knows people might be reluctant to call police in the future. I get it. We're trying to train our officers better, and we're trying to shore up our policies. And, and we're trying to ensure they act and react the way citizens intend them to. They act and react with a servant's heart instead of a warrior's <laughs> heart. I liken it to a bunch of ants building an ant hill, and then somebody comes in with a hose and washes it away. They just have to start from scratch and build a hill. I assume he means, like, build a new hill. I, uh, what a bad metaphor. <laughs> he also said he would refer the case to the FBI so that the agency could review federal civil rights charges against Dean, but I haven't found if anything um, has come of that. And he said, I ask you, please do not let the actions of one officer reflect on the other 1,700. There's absolutely no excuse for this incident, and the person responsible will be held accountable. Miss Jefferson's family and our community will have the last word. The courts will speak on her behalf. While Dean was charged with murder two days after the shooting, he wasn't indicted until December. I can't find a trial date anywhere. A Tatiana shooting came days before a jury convicted white former Dallas police officer Amber Geiger for the murder mm. of Botham Jean. After she came home from work and accidentally walked into his apartment, saw a black man in her apartment, and what else are you going to do? She shot him, even though it wasn't her apartment, it was his. She was sentenced to 10 years in prison a few days after Tatiana was killed, and that didn't sit well with a lot of people. These kinds of killings have been going on for a long time, but nobody really is seeing any changes. You know, you'd think like after the Amber Geiger thing, that type of thing would be on the Fort Worth radar, but apparently it wasn't or wasn't enough. I think part of that is that they just cops who saw what happened with that just didn't think it had anything to do with them. They don't understand the underlying issues. Um, they take it on face value. Tatiana's mother, Yolanda Carr, lived in the house where Tatiana was shot, and she died there in January. She was hospitalized when her daughter was killed and um, has been missing her critical caregiver ever since, the family attorney Lee Merritt told TV station NBC DFW. Jefferson's father, Marquis Jefferson, also had died two weeks after her funeral, Tatiana's wow. funeral. Carr, the mother, was devastated by her daughter's death. She went into the bedroom every day where my sister oh. was assassinated, Amber Carr, Tatiana's sister, said. She watched the videos on YouTube. We tried to keep the news off, but she always found a way to get a link. Ashley Carr, another sister, said of her mother, that was her child. She wanted to make sure that it was all taken care of, and that was her whole thing, was to make sure that she could get justice for my sister's death. In the wake of his daughter's death, Marquis Jefferson announced plans to start a foundation in her memory. At Atiana's funeral, Jefferson told his daughter, I want to make sure your dreams are a reality. The foundation, he explained, will extend the vision both father and daughter shared, and this is from the, um, I'm quoting the Fort Worth newspaper, while also honoring the legacy of medical providers in the Jefferson family. Carter noted that Jefferson's mother was a nurse for 50 years at the now-shuttered Forest Avenue Hospital, the first black-owned hospital in Dallas. Bruce hmm. Carter, a family spokesman, said that her, um, Marquis Jefferson didn't have a condition that made his heart give out, other than the fact I keep fighting for my daughter. It was stress that killed him. Yeah. In a sad footnote, on May 28th, Smith, the neighbor who originally called police because the door to the house was open, posted on Facebook that the Jefferson's house had been vandalized and burglarized. 
Smith had been keeping an eye on the house since Yolanda Carr died. His Facebook post says, Fort Worth, I'm at a loss for words. The scream I want to make will be largely heard. These are pictures of the Carr family home, and he posted like 30 pictures. A damn disgrace, without a doubt. The family home was broken into. Is this what humanity has turned into? Take a good look at another family's grief. Tragedy seems to be on repeat. I thought I was done with relaying bad news. Again, I apologize to this family, and that's not enough. This city has been most corrupt. The pain is beyond measure. That day, after walking up their driveway into the backyard, he saw the window screens on the ground. There was a discarded vacuum cleaner in the alley behind the house. He sent her sisters, who now own the house, photos of the vacuum, and they confirmed it belonged to their mother. So he went inside, and the house was trashed. There was stuff covering the floor, food left out in the kitchen... Shelves were empty and ransacked. He said, Myself as well as the car children are dealing with post-traumatic stress. We're still dealing with the Minneapolis situation. We're still dealing with other situations similar to Tatiana's, he told the Star-Telegram. This was just on top of the trauma that we're already experiencing. Whoever broke into the house did so by shattering and entering through a window in the back. It was the same window the family had only recently bought to replace the one that Dean shot through. And if last October doesn't already seem like a long time ago, this might. Fort Worth is made up of 35% Hispanic residents, 20% black, and about 40% white. The Washington Post wrote after the shooting, Many community members have pointed out the racial dynamics in the case. Dean is white, and Jefferson and her family are black. Some say the case is part of a larger pattern, where police view people of color as threats, and use excessive force when patrolling their communities. Hmm... I know, it's like funny to hear something as kind of milk toasty as that concerning what's going on now, you know. Deborah Peoples, the chair of the local Democratic Party, told Time Magazine that members of the community have had enough of police brutality and with the failure of the city's leadership to enact change. Peoples said that the community of color as a whole has PTSD from the violence. Quote, The police come into our community as if they're coming into a war zone, she said, noting that the city needs to do more to combat a systematic culture of racism. People says that both the black community and the immigrant community are afraid to call the police because they believe they could be unjustly apprehended or harmed by police. Hmm. I know. I know. Now everybody knows. That was in October. Nobody knew, but... As with George Floyd, that if the person isn't shot but killed in another way they try to blame some other health issue. Or even mm-hmm. if they are shot, they try to blame some other health issue. And God forbid the victim of police deadly force has a mental health issue. And as you'll see later with my NNW review, we generally get the police version of things, and that can't always be trusted. This is just a sampling. The first one ki- was kind of famous in its time, but it quickly faded. On October 29, 1984, New York City police were called to the apartment of Eleanor Bumpers, a 69-year-old disabled black woman who housing authority workers needed help evicting. They told police she was emotionally disturbed, had threatened to throw boiling lye at them, and was using a knife to resist eviction. Before the eviction attempt, Bumpers, who had arthritis and other health problems, had told her daughter that someone in the building was harassing her. Her daughter told her to keep the door locked. Bumpers told a housing authority official she would not pay the rent because she was having maintenance problems, but she wouldn't let maintenance workers into apartment when they were sent. In one phone conversation, she told a housing authority manager she would not pay the rent because people had come through the windows, the walls, and the floors and had ripped her off. 
When maintenance workers were admitted to the apartment on October 12, 1984, they checked a hallway light and stove as requested and found no problems. But they found several cans of human feces in the bathtub. Bumpers blamed these on, quote, Reagan and his uh, people. <laughs> what? Wait, she sorry. blamed these on Reagan and his people. Oh, yeah. Well, he was president you know. at the time. Yes. Four days before the eviction attempt, the city sent a psychiatrist to visit her. He concluded that she was psychotic and unable to manage her affairs properly and should be hospitalized. A social services supervisor decided that the best way to help Bumpers was to evict her first and then hospitalize her. Hmm. On the morning of October 29th, Bumpers told the housing authority workers who had come to evict her that she would throw boiling lye at the next face to appear. The hmm. NYPD Emergency Service Unit, specially trained in subduing emotionally disturbed people, and you'll see how they do that, was summoned, but they couldn't get her to come to the door. And, and a lot of these ones where the people have emotional problems, you would think one of the basic things that the police would learn is when you corner somebody, you know, who's already having issues, they're they're not going to submit you know they're gonna i know and a lot feel... of the cop shootings seems like the ones in maine one of the elements is usually mental illness and, and, on the well, part of the victim yes and many it is but the, in this case they drilled out the lock and through the hole they could see the naked 69 year old in her living room holding a 10 inch kitchen knife so mm. what else are you gonna do the officers knocked down the door and entered they tried to restrain her with plastic shields and a special Y-shaped bar, which I assume they, like, you know, would, like, fork her with or, you know, yeah. hold her down like you would an animal. Yes. Um, but she fought free, waving the knife and trying to slash an officer, they said. Mm-hmm. One of the cops, Stephen Sullivan, fired two shots from his 12-gauge pump shotgun. One pellet from the first shot struck her hand. All nine pellets from the second struck her in the chest, killing her. Sullivan was indicted on second-degree manslaughter charges, but was ultimately acquitted. Her family sued the city for $10 million in damages and settled for 200000 On November 13, 2014, Tanisha Anderson's family in Cleveland called 911. Tanisha, 37, who was bipolar, was having a bad day, according to her sister. Anderson had left the Windsor Laurelwood Center for Behavioral Medicine in Willoughby, Ohio, 12 days earlier. It was her second trip to the mental health facility in as many months. Dressed only in a nightgown with no shoes, and this was November in Cleveland, Mm. she kept trying to leave um, a relative's Cleveland house. The family said later they expected when they called 911 for an ambulance to arrive, but instead two squad cars with four police officers did. Tanisha seemed calmer after the police talked to her and they left, but she got upset again, so the family called 911 again, and again police came. The second set of cops, the family said, was ruder and more brusque. Detectives Scott Aldridge and Brian Myers said they'd take Tanisha to the hospital. They told the family to stay in the house, and they walked Tanisha to their patrol car. Tanisha got upset as they were putting her in the car. Her brother believed it was because she was in a confined space. You know, and she's being taken away by cops, right? The officers told investigators it was because her brother was yelling at her and telling her she was going to jail. Her brother has disputed that claim. Somehow, as the family watched from the house, including Tanisha's 16-year-old daughter, Tanisha Mm. ended up handcuffed on the pavement face down. The family and the police accounts differ as to how that happened. This is almost directly from Cleveland.com. The officer said Anderson went on the ground on her own and kicked at them while she was on her back. 
Family members told investigators that the officers slammed her onto the ground. Mm -hmm. The two officers both told investigators that Joelle Anderson, the brother, told them his sister was, quote, fake sleeping. One witness told investigators that it was actually the officers who claimed she was fake sleeping. The family and the police also disputed as to how long she was on her back and when she was turned over onto her stomach, still in handcuffs. Cuyahoga County Sheriff investigators estimated she was handcuffed on the ground for about 21 minutes based on a timer on one of the officer's stun guns, which was activated but not used. The officers requested an ambulance, which arrived at some point. It says which arrived seven minutes later, but if she was on the ground for 21 minutes, I'm not sure what that was later from. The EMS people who arrived told investigators they had to request that the officers remove the handcuffs so they could treat Tanisha at the scene. The ambulance took Tanisha to the Cleveland Clinic where she was pronounced dead at 12.30 a.m. The coroner said she arrived in full cardiopulmonary arrest and could not be revived. He ruled her death a homicide with the cause listed as sudden death in association with physical restraint in a prone position in association with ischemic heart disease and bipolar disorder with agitation. The coroner's report included something called Garrity Statements, which is evidence that's barred from being used in an internal investigation of officers or criminal proceedings against them. I think it's things police said at a scene that can't be used against them. So the judge involved ordered the first page of the autopsy report be removed, which contained the cause and manner of death. In 2017, the AG also got a ruling from a coroner in Montgomery County, way down across the state where we used to live in Dayton, I presume to ensure neutrality, who found that she died from a cardiac event and said one of her arteries was 70 to 80% closed and another was 50% closed. She suffered from heart disease and was taking prescription medication, Respiridol, Respiridone, that increased her risk of heart attack. He said the autopsy didn't show any significant injuries other than chest injury that was likely caused by medics giving her CPR. That coroner also noted that she had several other medical issues, including diabetes, obesity, and bipolar disorder. A Cuyahoga County grand jury in February 2018, more than three years after her death, cleared the officers of any criminal wrongdoing. They were both disciplined for failing to notify Cleveland EMS in a timely manner, according to their disciplinary letters, and they were each suspended for 10 days. On June 18, 2017, in Seattle, Charlena Lyles, 30, a pregnant mother of four, was shot by the police after she called to report a burglary. The officers, like all the others in this report, were white. She was black. When they got there, they said they tried to talk to her, but she suddenly attacked them with one or two knives, and they shot her seven times. Lyles, who was very petite, had been struggling with mental health issues, her family said, and she was concerned authorities would take away her children, one of whom, the four-year-old, had Down syndrome. Before the two officers went to her apartment, when they got the call, they were alerted to hazard information, which is a kind of warning to police going on a call that the person they're going to deal with can be dangerous. Lyle's sister said she had been arrested earlier that month by police responding to another call, after she had armed herself as protection against her boyfriend with a pair of scissors. And it's not really clear what went on there. According to King County Jail Records, the Seattle Time reported, she was arrested and booked into jail June 5th, about two weeks before this took place, for obstruction of a public official and two counts of harassment. She was released conditionally June 14th, four days before she was shot. Her sister said one of the conditions of her release was that she get mental health counseling. 
She was shot in front of her three kids, Mm. ages 11, 4, and 1. Quote, there were several children inside the apartment at the time of the shooting, but they were not injured, the department said after the shooting. Her sister said, actually, I think she yelled this at reporters outside the apartment, there's no reason for her to be shot in front of her babies. The Seattle police shot the wrong one today. Her brother, D'Amico Jones, said that Lyles had had mental health issues for about a year, and her family had tried to help her. He said that care of the four-year-old with Down syndrome required her full round-the-clock attention. She worried that the children would be taken from her, and the apartment management wanted her out of the complex. The family filed a wrongful death suit after the shooting. Attorneys for officers Jason Anderson and Steve McNew argued that the claim should be dismissed because under Washington law, it is a complete defense in any action for damages for personal injury or wrongful death if the person injured or killed was engaged in the commission of a felony at the time and that the felony was a proximate cause of the injury or death. Quote, Ms. Lyle's death is a direct result of her commission of felonies and failure to follow the clear verbal commands of officers Anderson McNew to, quote, get back, the attorneys wrote in court papers. Attorneys for the Lyle's estate responded it was clear she was suffering from a significant mental illness condition at the time of the incident, such that she lacked the mental capacity to commit the felonies that she's accused of. A Seattle Police Review Board, by the way, earlier, had found shooting to be within their department training and policy, and the lawsuit was dismissed by a judge in 2018. So, have you had enough yet? How about one more? Oh, one more. One more. And I got most of this from a lengthy account in Mother Jones magazine. On May 6, 2010, Ayanna Stanley Jones, 7, was asleep on the couch in the Detroit apartment where she lived with her family. Her grandmother was watching TV nearby. Suddenly, something threw through the window. It was a flashbang grenade that landed so close to Ayana that it burned her blanket. And if you've seen any, like, cop videos and stuff, a flashbang grenade basically blows up and gives a big flash. And it's not like a hand grenade that actually blows things up, but it does. It can injure a person. And this burned Ayana's blanket. Then the Detroit SWAT team kicked open the unlocked door to the apartment and Officer Joseph Weekly, the lead commando, fired. The bullet struck Ayana in the head, and it went down and came out her neck. Yes. It was all caught on film. Weekly had been featured on Detroit SWAT, an A&E show, and tonight a crew from A&E's The First 48 Hours was along. Two days before, Jarine Blake Noble, 17, had been shot nearby, and an informant had given police the addresses being connected to the shooting. There was a guy, supposedly... Unfortunately, he lived in an apartment upstairs. At first, police said that Ayana's grandmother had grabbed Weekly's gun. Oh, then, Jesus. Then Mother Jones wrote, realizing that sounded implausible, they said she brushed the gun as she ran past the door. But the grandmother says she was lying on the far side of the couch away from the door. And this is already long, so I won't get into the whole dynamic of TV crews being along for the ride. Mm. But, and, and I think we know how that goes. Police who were not involved with this told Mother Jones that flashbangs aren't usually used in this type of raid or arrest. And there was a lot of speculation that it was used to make things exciting for the TV crew. Yeah. On October 4, 2011, following a year-long investigation by the Michigan State Police, Weekly, the guy who shot Ayana, was charged with involuntary manslaughter and careless discharge of a firearm. The first 48 photographer, Allison Howard, was charged with perjury and obstruction of justice. Wow. 
yeah, you gotta, yeah, there's a lot more in the story, but, you know, it's, on April 4th, 2019, Iana's family settled with Detroit for $8.25 million. You'd think with all this shit, things would have changed before now. I mean, that was 10 years ago. It yeah. took them nine years to get their money. In Seattle, where Lyles was killed, the department had been under a federal consent decree since 2012 after a Department of Justice investigation found its officers routinely engaged in excessive use of force, most often against people with mental or substance abuse problems. Federal investigators also found evidence of biased policing. In Cleveland, Anderson died shortly before the U.S. Justice Department issued a 58-page report that found, among other things, many Cleveland police officers are not properly trained to handle encounters with people with mental illnesses. The report found that officers do not practice proper de-escalation techniques to keep a situation from getting out of control and wind up using cruel and excessive force against the mentally ill and medically ill. The report led to a consent decree and mandated changes in the way police officers deal with calls of people suffering from mental illness. And a consent decree, you may have heard that on TV a lot lately, is when the Department of Justice does an investigation of a police department that has a pattern of poor behavior like this, the Federal Department of Justice and the city where the police department is come to an agreement about how the department is going to act. Anderson's death helped spark a change in the way Cleveland police officers are trained and handling mental health crises, according to Cleveland.com. And the city also settled a $2.25 million wrongful death suit with her family. The Guardian, where I got some of my information on the Anderson killing, the one in um, Cleveland, studied every police killing in the U.S. in 2015 and 2016. She was killed in 2014, so she wasn't part of the story of that study, but they still did a story on her. Of the 22 women killed by police in the U.S. in 2015, seven were killed in their home. Wow. Of the 1,146 people killed that year, 307 were black, 526 were white, 235 were unarmed. The only unarmed black woman killed in 2015 was Betty Jones, 55, of Chicago, who was trying to help a neighbor deal with a domestic disturbance. She was trying to direct the police to the right place when somehow she was shot. The son of the neighbor who was the one doing the disturbing was also fatally shot and also black and also unarmed. And these are all shootings. I'm not sure if I mentioned it before, but when the person isn't shot, but like, you know, Tanisha in Cleveland, they're just handcuffed, treated poorly, put on, or like George Floyd. Yeah, I was going to say George it's, Floyd. There's yeah. a lot of gray area. You know, if George Floyd that hadn't been on film, it would have been, yeah, he was a guy with health problems. Yeah. You know, and both The Guardian and The Washington Post have done recent studies of police killings, shootings in the U.S., The Guardian in 2015 and 2016, and the Post from 2014 to the present day. The stats aren't easy for either of them to find. A lot of departments don't provide that information. Both studies show that police across the U.S. fatally shoot about 1,000 people a year, and it's pretty consistent. That's compared to the average of 48 police a year who are killed in the line of duty. And that's just, like I said, the shootings. As we know, the non-shootings can be chalked up to stuff having nothing to do with the knee on the neck for 8 minutes and 46 seconds. Through the first week of June this year, according to the Washington Post, 476 people have been killed by police. In May of this year, police shot and killed 110 people. 
the Ooh. most in any one month since the Post began tracking such incidents in 2014. Quote, it is difficult to explain why we haven't seen significant fluctuations in the shooting from year to year, former Charlotte, North Carolina Police Chief Daryl Stevens said. There's been significant investments that have been made in de-escalation training. There's been a lot of work, and yet that number Gee. just won't go down. And most of these shootings, the people are armed. But of the unarmed people killed by police, 30.1% are black. 10.7% are Hispanic, 7% are white, and the rest, the police didn't know to race. And mm. that's about 5%. If people weren't aware before, they should be after the last several weeks we've gone through here in America that there's a problem. And it's a false equivalency that many people are promoting right now, that it's going to happen because there's more, quote, black crime. As we know, the basis for crime comes from a lot of different elements Systemic issues, including racism, are the foundation. The stories I've told show a variety of issues. The increasing militarization of the police, the lack of ability to deal with mental health issues, which is a huge factor in many situations police deal with, fatal or not. I can't remember the statistic and didn't look it up, but I think I remember reading somewhere in the last few years that 40-something percent of Maine's police responses have to do with mental illness. Racism is also a big issue. It can't be denied. Many people will say they're not racist, but everyone deep down has prejudices that they have no control over. I'm sure all of the cops in my story today would insist that they aren't racist. But I can't imagine any of those situations happening the way they did in a white neighborhood or with white people. I'm not saying police don't also kill unarmed white women you know, there was one in Minneapolis a year or so ago, but obviously the statistics show it happens way more to black people. When people talk about defunding the police, you must know by now, it means directing more resources toward taking care of the issues that are at the roots of all these things, rather than mm. waiting for something to happen and react to it. All the departments I've discussed had problems before one of their white officers killed a black woman for no good reason. We're also talking, in a lot of cases, an overblown reaction to, quote, crimes designed to marginalize poor people and, more importantly, black people. The war on drugs has been, in many ways, an anti-black campaign for decades. Curfews, like the one Dave McAtee in Louisville was allegedly violating when he was killed, are constructs set up to make innocent people criminals. Mm -hmm. And by all accounts, things have gotten worse in the last few years. President Barack Obama had convened a task force on 21st century policing to start examining these problems. You can imagine what happened to that task force under the Trump administration. In the past decades, since the 1992 Rodney King case in L.A., the Department of Justice has used pattern of practice investigations, which I mentioned earlier, to issue consent decrees that bring police departments into line with the Constitution and doing their jobs properly. Trump's Department of Justice, first under Jeff Sessions and now under William Barr, has an issue with those. Oh. On June 4th, Attorney General William Barr refused to open a federal pattern of practice investigation regarding the Minneapolis De Police Department and the George Floyd case. No surprise, the Trump administration has abandoned the practice, uh -huh. a Washington Post study found. They don't need one, Barr said. There's no systemic racism in U.S. policing. Uh -huh. And that is my story. Oh, it was very upsetting. It is upsetting. And 
I think it's easy for people to ignore or think it's isolated cases. But, you know, there's so many we didn't even talk about, and there's so many that happen. And it's really frustrating that whenever you do read about these, you know, the, the stories you get are based on what the police tell people and based on the police information. And that's one reason I just want to make a pitch for journalism being so important now, because if it weren't for the Washington Post and the Guardian and the New York Times and the Dallas-Fort Worth Star-Telegram and the Louisville Courier and all the other newspapers that go beyond what the police are telling them and actually look at what's going on, people would just take the police's word for it, especially since it's easier for people like who live where we do to do that and say, well, these people are obviously have issues or are bad and the police had no choice. You know? Yeah. And even here in Maine, you know, it's not a race thing here for the most part, but every police shooting of a civilian is justified, always. There's yeah. never one that's not. You know, there's a lot we could say, but... Yeah. And, and, and misogyny plays a part in it, obviously. I don't think it's any surprise that a couple of co- these cops involved had, you know, sexual predator histories. And, yeah. Because um, they don't give a shit. They would just rather be... And I'm not saying all cops are like this, but as you'll see from my review in a few minutes, the, the increasing militarization of the police brings a lot of other issues. And also, you know, with so much going on, maybe some people don't even know that COPS has been canceled. And if anybody listens to I that... I saw that Live PD had been canceled, too. And so had COPS. And if anybody yes. listens to that podcast, Running with COPS, I won't get into mm. the whole thing about it, but, it, you know, so many things were manipulated, so many unconstitutional things happened. And I saw or read somewhere recently, I think I, oh, I read an interview with Dave Ternowski, the guy who did the podcast running with cops, that they would use cops like as a recruiting tool to say, hey, look, you can act like this. And so cops, more and more young men, like the guy who shot at Tatiana, you know, they want to, they want to get out there and be little warriors running around shooting bad guys and other people. So... Mm. That is my report. Well, thank you very much. Yeah. It was very informative. Thank you. It's hard to boil down all the information, but I hope this gives people at least uh, an idea of what's going on in our little way. (laughs) Doing our little part. But do we have recommendations? Yes. Okay. Okay, why don't you go first since I've been talking for... Okay. I rewatched the one I'm going to do now because I watched it when it first came out a couple years ago. It's a Netflix documentary called The Rachel Divide. Oh. Um, about Rachel Dolezal, the woman that pretended to be black. That's a simplification of it. It's a documentary by Laura Brownson. Um, it came out in April 2018. It's still on Netflix. And I had remembered a lot of it, but I still wanted to watch it again to if I was going to do a review on it. That's good. Um, and I want to tell you, you're, I hope you, you can cut this part out because I'm embarrassed how stupid I am. Oh, then I'll probably leave it in. Or how obtuse, I guess. Uh-huh. The Rachel Divide. I didn't think of the play on words, The Racial Divide. Oh! Uh- <laughs> Oh, see, I'm not as dumb as oh, I thought. Oh, 
I have been seeing that little thumbnail on Netflix for like two years now. And that, and I knew I just was got like, it today. I'm like, oh, I just got it now divide. when you said it. So, see, you weren't that dumb. <laughs> well, first, let me talk about the kind of a synopsis of it. It looks like they started filming it in 2016, before the election of Trump, and they filmed throughout. It must have been at least a year with her because she gets she's pregnant in the beginning of it and. She ends up having a baby by the end. So for those of you who don't know, Rachel Dolezal was the um, head of the NAACP in Spokane, Washington. Spokane, sorry, Washington. And it turns out that she is not black. She is a white woman who was telling people she was black. And it caused quite the uproar. I'm going to go through the negative Nellie's list first, and then I'm going to talk more about the documentary. So bad reenactments, no. There aren't any reenactments in this, so. Thank God. Narrative cliches, no. It's a kind of a linear, well, I'll talk about it more in storytelling, but there really are. I didn't see any narrative cliches. Uh, Racial gender obtuseness, not at all. I think even the opposite, it talks about race in, you know, it's kind of frank about things in a way that especially white people aren't really comfortable talking about what it means to be black and why her pretending to be black. I don't even want to say pretending. I have to talk more about her later. She deceived people about her uh, ethnicity, why that is makes some people so angry and I'll talk about a little more about that later. Lack of good visuals. There were a lot of good visuals. There are tons of news reports and footage of her even before you know she was found out not to be black. There were you know of her because of her position. She was on the news a lot and stuff and then also pictures of her as a child and as a young woman. So I was very happy because, as you know, we like to have yes. lots of pictures. Yes. Uh, missing pieces, no. I didn't feel like I had a lot of questions, things that were gnawing at me at the end, you know, like a lot of times we do. I mean, it's kind of a the way it was told. It told about a certain part of her life, and, and they did fill in some of her background. It was about a, an hour and 45 minutes, and it covered pretty much I didn't really have anything where I was like ooh what you know what happened then inaccuracy inaccuratisms now I mean storytelling I thought the storytelling was good the documentary documentarian was with her a lot Rachel and her two sons and her sister so a lot of it was her And it was kind of sympathetic to her, probably just because they were with her so much. But they also talked to the detractors, who I thought explained themselves really well. There were two other women that worked with the NAACP in Spokane that knew her in a, you know, professional way, who explained very well their position and why they felt betrayed and they were... They were pissed. Those were two black women. There was another woman, a local reporter. They just said local journalist, so I'm not sure. But she was also black, and she was kind of more, she took it less personally. I, I, don't, I don't know how to say it. She was a little bit more philosophical about the whole situation. There was an older man. She called him her father figure, um, and he was like a mentor to Rachel. And she'd call him dad, and she kind of 
led people to believe he was her father. He's a black guy. So they talked to all of those people. Did they talk to her parents or just go? I think they just used interviews from other sources of her parents. And one of her brothers who was adopted, they did not talk to her biological brother, who I'll talk about later. So I thought the storytelling was good. They kind of set it up. They showed a lot of her life. The B-roll type of things I thought were interesting. They showed her like doing her hair and stuff like that. Freshness, I thought it was very fresh because even though I had heard a lot about her, the stories we heard about her are kind of simplistic. The whole thing is kind of complex and made me think a lot more about it, especially seeing it a, a second time about race and what it means to people. I, anything I say sounds trite, but yeah. whatever. Oh. Repetition, no, not at all. Even the photographs, they might have re repeated a couple of them, but it went, like I said, in kind of a linear way. There was kind of a storyline about what was going on in her life at the moment while they were filming her older son. He had been her adopted brother, and she took custody of him and adopted him as her son, oh, Isaiah. that's confusing. He's about 20. He was trying to go to law school and stuff, and then she has her biological son, who is about 13, Franklin, whose father's black. They both talked a lot to the filmmaker. The poor 13-year-old was just having such a hard time. Beating the drum, no, it could have beat the drum, could have easily beat the drum, I thought. A lot of people don't want to talk about race issues the white people. I think it's uncomfortable to confront. And like the white people that interviewed her just were so, some of them were such numb nuts. Like Savannah Guthrie, your favorite, oh, was oh. one of them. Like she was on the Today Show, it looks like three times and Savannah uh. Guthrie interviewed her all three times. Uh. I thought that the, they could have beat a drum and they didn't, which I was happy about. Some people might not be. I think some people might feel like it's too sympathetic to her and that she's this, you know, fraudster or con woman. I think it's a lot more complicated. And I know that this uh, probably me being sympathetic to her is probably going to piss some people off. If you watch this documentary, I don't think she set out to fool people. I think that she really is a lost person like some of the other women we've, or maybe men, but I think it's mostly been women. But someone that doesn't know who she is, she had a bad childhood. Her parents are Bible thumpers. They, they had her and her brother. They wanted to have more kids. They didn't have more kids. When she and her older brother were teenagers, her parents adopted four kids. One of them was a girl and the older brother uh, sexually molested. Her name's Esther. She's on the um, documentary too. She was suing the older brother. I don't know if she was suing him or if, if it was a criminal case. I don't know, but her case was going to court and he apparently had abused Rachel also. And she came forward and said, yes, he abused me. And that's when she started being investigated by a private investigator that her parents hired because they didn't believe that her brother would do that i guess then this is when it came out that she's white and well didn't her parents already know she was white her parents sorry her parents are in montana oh okay they didn't know she was living her life as a black woman okay earlier you were going to mention the racial makeup of the adopted children 
Yes, all the adopted children were black. Okay. Because the mother wanted to adopt and wanted the kids like right then and it's easier to adopt black children. And I don't know if they were all babies at the time she adopted them or but they were young. Isaiah was one of the older adopted kids. He left he couldn't stand living there. They whipped the kids. They were oh, they geez. were abusive. Esther has scars from them whipping them with a whip. They weren't good people. Oh, jeez. When Esther accused the older brother, the biological son, of sexual abuse, the parents were like, no, you know, of course our son wouldn't do that. Huh. And then Rachel said, well, he did it to me, too. That's when they hired a private investigator to dig up dirt on Rachel. The PI contacted the local tv reporter who he was interviewing her about something else supposedly and then he like said are your biological parents white and she was just like uh and then she left the the um interview i can't say i empathize with her but i understand why i truly understand why people were pissed and the filmmaker does a really good job of this montage of a lot of black women especially saying you know she doesn't have a right to use our you know struggle to take it on and pretend that she's gone through it because she could easily go back which which is what i always think she could easily if it gets too hard she's just like just like black like me yeah i mean she doesn't have to keep it up at the same time she just seems like a lost person right that was a community or that was something that she was accepted by i don't know i think they right. do a really good job showing it i didn't take off any points yeah it's a 10 i i do recommend it i would say if you might not want to watch it or maybe you should watch it but if you think that it's going to just totally piss you off to watch it i've thought on and off like when i'm scrolling through netflix however long it's been on there i've thought on and off of watching it but the reason i haven't is because i just i knew how intense things would be and i just don't want to deal with it i thought it was good it showed i mean she really really loves her sons and her sister and her you know the family that came to be with her but i think one of her problems is she just for some reason cannot understand that people do not agree with her saying that she identifies after after all this has she still does she still not get it she still didn't get it and like so she there was one interesting scene where she has she obviously has some kind of mental yes problem yeah i think she does but she was she was she went to this discussion it looked like it was at a like at a college or something with this guy who like an interview i guess and he as a black young man and he told her he identifies as a white woman so he when he heard about her he understood and the people in the mm-hmm. audience were actually very nice to her black women in the audience considering what she was doing and mm-hmm. the way other people had treated her and one of the women said you know i like your style and everything <laughs> but why do you have to say you're black i mean why can't you just be white and, she, yeah. and she's like but i feel black and it's like but you know what it reminded me of, too? When they had a, the montage of black women saying, you are not black. You weren't born black. You don't know what it's like to be black. You don't have the universal right. history. of. Recently, J.K. Rowling has gotten yes. in trouble because she said... She's yes. anti-trans. 
she didn't say she's anti-trans and no, I'm, I'm not gonna pop I'm not well yes and I'm not I'm not excusing what she said no. but what she said was people who weren't born women she was kind of saying the same thing although it, it's not the same thing if you're a man or, or if you were born a man then you can't understand what it's right like to well be a woman. well the distinction is and it is that, different that people who have the gender issues have it biological or yes. whatever yes exactly if it's a different. if a man if a heterosexual man who didn't have those feelings was saying like i identify like, <laughs> like the movie some like right. it right <laughs> only that was funny but i would find it insulting i yes. find it insulting when heterosexual men the presume to understand like whether something it, who claims something's yes. not misogynistic or whatever or yes, claim to understand exactly. how women there's a lot of things that happen right. as far as gender goes that are different Let's one of the things rachel says which I kind of agree with, but not in the same way, is that race is a social construct. Yes, it is, but that doesn't mean that you can just say you're something that you're not. It means that, yes, we are all people, and somebody has decided that somebody of a certain ethnic group is not the same, and we really are the same, but at the same time, because we have put that construct on things... The construct it, it, is part of the issue. Yes. That, that she doesn't you understand. You can't just get rid of it. Yeah, you the can't fact, just say it doesn't in, in, exist. In fact, I would say without having seen this documentary, the fact that she doesn't understand, aside from obviously having mental, some kind of mental illness or something, maybe related to her abuse or maybe it's just I think natural. It, I think in any case, the fact that she doesn't understand that to me, just validates what the black women are saying. I know. It's surprising. That's what makes me think that she does have some kind of a mental block or something because right. the fact that she went to Howard University, she Was she identifying as Afri black when she no, went to Howard? No, as a matter of fact, that's so one like, of the reasons why people don't like her because she sued them for racial discrimination because she's uh, white. Um, wow. But she studied... And she taught, she's so ensconced in that culture that you think that she would understand. Like, yes. it's almost like she doesn't see. It's almost like a body dysmorphia not. kind of thing. Yes. Well, and that's what she's trying to say. But it's like, but no, you can't. Right. You just, it's one thing to say, I really admire black well, women and I wish, I really wish I was and I'm a really staunch ally but you can't you can't just say i'm right. gonna put, i'm gonna be one you know a, a weave in my hair and i'm gonna like now that you know she's white when you see you're like ah how could i not have known yeah, well maybe like, i should watch that because when that whole thing happened i was so confused by it you know? and i feel bad because she's an extremely talented artist visual artist and she seems in some ways like a nice person she's not a mean person or anything but she has an issue the other thing that annoys me and this always annoys me and every time this happens where somebody's like oh i can't find a job i can't find a job and it's like well you can't find a job in the field that you have ruined for yourself but you can find a job right you might not like it but well if she were truly black she'd be working some minimum wage job because nobody would be hiring her for anything anyway but she'd be working a minimum wage job to put food on the table she wrote something. a book and at the time mm. of the um at the time of Is the it documentary no, no, she had a publisher, she had an agent. 
Hmm. But it all, and she did a tour where she was on national shows. She was on the Today Show when the book came See, out. See, after all that, you would think that she would get it. But she only sold like 500 copies. Huh. I know. I felt bad. I felt bad for her. Oh, and I, I felt really that. bad for her sons and her sister because her sister's case against the molester went to nothing because That's... because Rachel's credibility, she was one of his accusers. And Right. If you're lying about what race you are, then it's hard any for anybody to believe you about being sexually assaulted, I which is a hard like... sell anyway. I know. But I feel like the documentary, it, it allows you to see maybe how she ended up with this weird... Right. Well, well, and who knows, too, she may have had something wrong to begin with, mentally, and the abuse and everything just exacerbated it. Lots of times, you know, it's not just one thing. Yeah. Anyways, I would highly recommend it. Yeah. Even though it got a 10, it's not like it was my favorite thing. Right. I just felt like it was very it well was done. It was well done, right. You will feel really bad for the son. I wonder Is she still if... married? No, no. Did her husband no. think she was black? No, he knew. She met him when she was white. They met in school. <laughs> she met and, him when uh, she was white. <laughs> he didn't like. She says in the documentary that he he didn't like her hanging out with black people, and he wanted a white wife. She said mm. she'd wear like a dashiki Sounds or something. Sounds like she's and he not the only like one it. with an issue. The child she's pregnant with during the document and gives birth to, she's also a little boy that she names Langston after Langston Hughes. That father was not in the picture, so he's not the same father as Franklin, her 13-year-old. The one thing that bothered me was I wondered, does he really want to be in this documentary and does she Right, anytime there's him? kids and something like that. I, I mean, I, the older son, he was old enough, I think he's about 20. Right. But anyways, yes. Oh, well, good, I'll have to, if it's still on, because eventually it's going to expire soon, right? I think it's one of the ones expiring soon. I think you'd like I'll it. I'll watch it. Well, we'll see. Okay. You can watch it in yeah, an I evening. Yeah, can watch it. Okay. Okay, so well, what do you have? I am also doing a documentary one that I watched when it first came out in 2016 and rewatched this week with all this police stuff going on. And it was as good as I remembered it. It's called Peace Officer. And it was originally on the PBS Independent Lens series. PBS has a whole, like, page dedicated to it. You can find it and you can watch it on Amazon Prime. It's about the militarization of police and I know that sounds a little boring but it focuses on this guy Dub Lawrence and he's kind of funny and he was a sheriff in this town in Utah starting in the 70s like in early 70s he's the one that brought the SWAT team this isn't really a spoiler it starts out his son-in-law who was involved in a domestic violence incident with his daughter ends up in a standoff with police and ends up being shot by the very SWAT team that this guy had created. Mm. And Ooh, it's just like a movie or something. It is a movie. Only it's a documentary. Yeah, well I meant a But fiction, I know what you mean. A work of fiction. Just like the world we're living in. But in any case, he becomes kind of like obsessed because he feels responsible and guilty. The young man, young man, I think he's in his 30s or 40s, is like, shouldn't have been killed. It's really mind-boggling what they did. Like, they have this kind of, like, SWAT tank thing, and it just, like, runs over this garden fence and shit, you know? And they had, like, every law enforcement thing out there. And 
the guy was gonna give himself up and they ended up shooting him anyway, just going at him with flashbangs and shit. So he becomes obsessed with it because he just wants to figure out how it all went wrong. He's no longer in law enforcement. He's like a roto-rooter kind of guy. And he also has this huge hangar where he builds airplanes and in the back of his hangar he's got his like obsession room and then in the course of him looking into that other people who had had similar things happen kind of pull him into theirs too and so he looks at during this documentary he's there's a couple different cases like there's one that if you read about in the paper you'd think it was just some scummy drug guy pulling a gun on police and getting shot up But his investigation finds that one of the cops who was shot, the first cop who was shot, and it was probably shot by friendly fire and all this other stuff. The first time I saw it in 2016, and I was still working for a newspaper at the time, I'm like, I'm never going to believe a newspaper account I read of a police shooting again after watching this. And a lot of the stuff that's going on today that's being talked about today, this really shows it, and I hugely recommend it. There are no reenactments. Um, He does some recreations of stuff, which is cool, but it's nice because there are no reenactments. There are no that I can think of narrative cliches. Um, I remember the first time I watched it, Um, I was intrigued because it was called Peace Officer, and I know that's what police officers are called in a lot of instances, but I was expecting, I was almost reluctant to watch it, expecting kind of something that was like all rah-rah police, and and it's not... So no narrative cliches, no real gender racial obtuseness, none of that. It takes place in Utah, so everybody is white. So as far as adding to the to the racial conversation that's going on now, I would say it adds to that and that. What do you see? What is happening to white people? Imagine what's happening to black people, and it does show without judging. The people. It does show video, uh, police surve- not surveillance, but police like body cam and other videos of some of these raids where they're just screaming, "Police, open up!" as they're bursting in, and you can just tell how shocked the people are. And one thing, they shoot a dog. Aww. Nobody really says anything about it, but the dog's like crying on the floor, and you can tell it's paralyzed or something. And the people have no idea what's going on, and they're screaming at people to lie down. There's one guy, you can tell he's in his pajamas, no idea what's going on, and they just blow him away. Oh um, my god. And some of those have black people, but they don't present it in in a way that shows the people being raided as stereotypical or bad criminals or anything. It's just, whether you're a criminal or not, this is no way to be treated. The visuals are great. There's a shitload of video from when his son-in-law was shot and he goes through a lot of it and shows what the police are doing because he was the expert at all this and what they're doing wrong. There's video from a lot of the other things. The one with the friendly fire, they were just talking about a volley of bullets. It was just, Mm. but that had no video. Nobody was wearing a body cam, but there's a lot of video of these things and I'm not being ghoulish to say it's something people should see. I think people should see it because people need to know when they read in the newspaper or hear on TV, the police announce themselves or whatever. 
people need to understand what that means and see what that means. That it's not them politely knocking on the door and saying, hey, it's the police, let us in. So the visuals are awesome. There are no missing pieces. There are some cases I would have liked to know more about. It looks at a bunch of different things. Like there's one where the police, it was a wrong house thing. It's a young dad with a pregnant wife and two little girls. And the police were banging on the door and his daughter's like, Dad, somebody's banging at the door, and she had seen him go by her window. They didn't know. In a lot of cases, these guys aren't dressed like cops. You don't know who they are. Mm. And so he grabbed a baseball bat because he didn't want to scare his daughter by grabbing his gun. And he opened the door, and the cops put him in handcuffs and all this shit, and then it turned out they were at the wrong house. Mm-hmm. After they had him on handcuffs, prone out in the front yard with his wife and kids looking on and everything, and they didn't apologize or anything, and as the cops are leaving, they're like, one of them said to him, You're, it's lucky that wasn't a gun or you'd be dead right now. Or, or something like that. We'd be bringing Gee, in the cops. Kind of cavalier about it. So Some of the cases I would have liked to know more about, but they aren't things that were missing from the narrative. They It just made me curious, and they're really... I can't think of any missing pieces. I would have liked to have just seen more. Inaccuracy, anachronism. No. No, it was another... There was no narration. You know, there mm. were information cards. I like so, that. So I think a lot of the things that we don't like about certain documentaries, if there's no narration, it yes. gets rid of that problem. And so no points taken away for that storytelling the storytelling was really good i'm gonna take away half a point because it did that thing that i hate like it focuses on you know the whole somebody making themselves a cup of tea and Mm -hmm. i don't know if there was any tea in this one i'm thinking of the keepers but it's that kind of thing like it starts out at the beginning he's doing one of his roto rooter jobs and you don't know who this guy is and he's wearing his work shirt and stuff and he's talking about going into the sewers and stuff and you realize like the metaphor when he's done but it spends way too much time on that it spends a little too much time towards the end on that kind of thing rather than on the story you want to see told so i'm just going to take away half a point for that okay freshness very fresh very, very fresh because we're inundated from like cops and live PD to just the stuff, the other stuff Top we see shows. on TV, the yeah, stuff the we see, ones. the fictional ones and everything where there's and how they promote this kind of warrior militaristic. And there are a lot of things you're not talking about like this whole thing where they're given this military surplus equipment, but they have to use it within a year. So it forces them. To use this stuff, the over-militarization of everybody's a criminal, they assume everybody's a criminal. You know, I hear a lot, I didn't hear it much on this, although they did have some some cops talking about how they do their jobs who didn't buy into what this guy was saying. But, you know, you hear a lot with this stuff, even way before the George Floyd thing and everything. You know, you don't understand what we have to face every day. You know, we could be shot and aiming up, blah, blah, blah. Yes, that is part of the job, but it would be much less part of the job if there weren't this adversarial relationship yes, exactly. where they assume that everybody they look at is a criminal. And also, if more attention were given to the roots of yes. of why people are considered criminals and stuff. So it was or why very, people become criminals. Right. Or why do people do criminal acts? Right. So it was very fresh. Okay. 
Repetition? No, no, there was none of that annoying repetition like they have on 48 Hours, where they tell <laughs> the same story for 30 minutes. There was a little, I'm not going to take any points away, but showing him driving around in his Roto-Rooter. And it wasn't, it's not Roto-Rooter, I think he owns his own business, but it, it's that's the one thing I can think of to call it at this time mm. of night. You know, anytime I'm watching it, any kind of true crime documentary or whatever and there's somebody driving around talking mm. that gets old fast but i'm not taking away any points because it wasn't that bad beating the drum no they made a very good point with this but they did not beat the drum but they showed what happened and in a very compelling startling and shocking way that i think everybody in america should have to watch Ooh, so wow so you recommend it then? I highly recommend it, yeah. it's a 9.5 and it is i you know when i first watched it four years ago it was a big eye opener and i thought why isn't everybody watching this why isn't everybody talking about it and now that the stuff is going on yeah. now in america and around the world i think i think it would help people understand more when people talk about no-knock warrants and how police, like the Breonna Taylor thing, to see this, you understand how the police entered that yes. house and why somebody would shoot at them. When I worked, and that was 25, 26 years ago when I worked for a defense lawyer, and one guy, I just remember the main DEA did that. They burst in. In the middle of the night, he had young children. Everyone was asleep. They put him face down on the floor. He had no clothes on because he was sleeping. It was totally unnecessary. Right. It was like, regardless of what he, you know, he had like marijuana plants or something in his yard. You know, it's like... A lot of these drug crimes are ridiculous anyway. They don't merit the amount of force used. And I don't see why, if the police have a warrant to search someone's house, why they can't knock at the door at a sane time of day and say, let us in. We're the police, and we think you have drugs, and we're going to come in and look for them. Here's the warrant. What is wrong with doing it that way instead of battering? And the destruction they leave. You know, I know and they I, don't care. But, like, it, when the son-in-law was shot, it showed it a couple times. It's like tank thing just rolling over this garden and fence for no good fucking reason. They destroy people's houses, they tear them apart, and then they just walk away. Many times it's innocent people. Who aren't even criminals. It's crazy. That poor dog. You know, here Aww. people are getting shot. But that, you know, yeah, but why shoot the dog. fucking dog? People, but that anyway. just upsets me. I will watch Yeah, that. it's on Amazon Prime. It's free, free viewing on Amazon Prime. It is definitely worth watching. Like I said, you'll never, when you read a newspaper account or hear on TV about police raiding somebody's home you will and shooting somebody or them getting shot you will never look at it the same again oh, and and okay. it's kind of scary too how some of the police in it believe their own bullshit and don't really even understand what they did or what they're doing they're kind of like the rachels of the law <laughs> but on that note we appreciate everyone hanging in and listening hopefully you can find us on crimeandstuffonline.com Yes, right. and on Facebook and Twitter. We haven't been great with social media lately because things have just been so Blech. nuts. You know, a lot of 
nutty stuff going on. Yes, everyone's been. And we'll be back soon. I swear to God, we're going (laughs) to get one up every other week if it kills me. We'll try. Yeah. Oh, I'm next, so we'll see. Yeah, you'll have to think of something. Okay. Okay, Okay, good night. Thanks for listening. (laughs) What was that? I don't know. It sounded like something fell. And yeah, maybe it was dad. Dad fell.